Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for this Monday, March the 1st. Coming up, the fallout from last week's long-term care commission. Plus, travelers reporting chaos and confusion in those government-mandated quarantine hotels. And will Ontario's summer camps be allowed to open this year? All of that coming up right now on the pod. Brand new month, brand new week, same old problems. That, of course, after last week's commission on long-term care... And there seems to be more questions than answers that have come out of this. As we know, COVID, of course, has been devastating the province's long-term care system, responsible for the deaths of nearly 3,800 residents. Just let that soak in for a second. Nearly 4,000 of our most vulnerable, elderly, now dead in long-term care, and 11 staff members as well. And for more on this, uh, we're joined right off the uh, top this afternoon by Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. She's been all over this uh, file. She's a long-term care advocate, and she joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Nice to speak with you again. You too. Thanks for having me. All right. First off, just uh, overall, this uh, wrapped up uh, back on Friday, but what was your opinion of the commission? Was it a worthwhile endeavor, do you think? Uh, Did we get answers? I think we got a whole heck of a lot of answers. It was certainly worthwhile. Uh, there are problems, though, why it's uh, you know not as superior to an inquiry, and we saw that firsthand as well. You know, the strategies like um, dumping the commissioners with 217,000 documents in the week before Dr. Williams's testimony, for example, and even Minister Fullerton sent them documents. Uh, at 11 p.m. the night before she was supposed to be interviewed. So, you know, things like this, which obviously interfere with the commissioner's ability to properly vet the documents in order to provide a more proper, you know, not interrogation, but so to speak, but questioning to the to the uh, ministers when they have them. So these kinds of things were obviously a problem. All right. But of everything you heard, what was, in your estimation, what was the biggest headline? Was there a really big concern that came out of this uh, hearing, this commission? Oh, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt. And I'm pretty sure the, uh, you know, commissioners are going to come to the same conclusion that the Auditor General did. That uh, particularly uh, Dr. David Williams and Minister Fullerton, well, Mr. Elliott as well, since really it was the three of them that were responsible for the, the majority of decisions here. Uh, failed to exercise the precautionary principle. And as a result, more people died than had to. And I mean, there is just hundreds upon hundreds of pages documenting all the areas that they dropped the ball. And it is, it's really painful to see this. And I've been hearing from families that they also find it very triggering because, you know, a lot of these things were preventable and they had information that could have and should have prompted them to act sooner in a myriad of of areas, Um, but they didn't. Let's uh, talk a bit about that, because one of the big headlines was the fact that the minister, the long-term care minister, Mary Lee Fullerton, advocated for stronger uh, measures, sorry, and sooner, but that call essentially rejected uh, by the government. Do we know why the, the minister's advice was ignored? No, just apparently Dr. David Williams didn't agree with it. And you'd think it would be her job to advocate more strongly. And we don't really know exactly how much she really advocated in truth, right? It just said that she made some memos to herself that, you know, long-term care was being left out and that they should have, um, and that she was aware that asymptomatic transmission was potentially happening as early as February, yet mandatory masking didn't occur until April. I mean, 
you know, she doesn't deserve a get-out-of-jail-free card here. She is the Minister of Long-Term Care. Why didn't she speak up and point out to Dr. David Williams and Minister Elia that given the expertise so she so clearly decided to tell the commissioners about how she worked during H1N1 with Toronto Public Health, and she knows how vulnerable this population is, and, and she knew that, you know, something was coming. She had a feeling a pandemic was coming, yet did nothing to create an emergency plan for such events, and the commissioners pointed that out, that it was her job to come out with an emergency plan to procure the necessary resources and actually to simulate emergency response exercises with the homes. That never happened. I mean, just you name it, not heeding concerns from, for example, the Ontario Nurses Association who met with her in early February and were asking her all these very important questions and warning her that something bad was coming. And, and, you know, according to them, she didn't seem all that concerned and, and didn't have answers to their questions. So that did not sit well with, you know, the Ontario Nurses Association and the other unions who were warning um, this minister, that she should probably start getting on top of this because something is coming based on what was happening in, you know, in China and in Italy, and yet no plan. We even have reports from, you know, as late as April, where we all know what happened to Orchard Villa. And there's uh, some notes where, you know, the, the commissioners found a note that she had made to herself on April 17th saying, you know, military plan needed. Get them in within 24 to 48 hours. Well, guess when the military went in? April 28th, 11 days later, a little too late. And even when they asked her about this, well, why didn't you get them in sooner? Her answers would be like, well, I didn't really have answer. I, I wasn't privy to those, you know, arrangements. Well, then who was? Well, and I guess that brings up like a really big question here, doctor, is who's got the final say when it comes to long-term care or really any other portfolio when it comes to COVID and the pandemic? I mean, does Dr. Williams have the final say or is he just part of the health table offering and profiting health advice? And should it not be the individual minister who's got the, the final say or should it be the premier or do we know who it is? Yeah, and we don't because when you read the testimonies, they all kind of pass the, the buck on to one another. There's a lot of, well, ask this person, I'm not too sure, or ask this person, I'm not too sure. And then there's some, some cases where they say local public health officers were responsible because, keep in mind, Minister Fullerton also decided to download the responsibility in the second wave for these outbreaks onto the surrounding local public health units, which we argued against, um, but did that anyway. Was it to absolve? responsibility from her being in charge of this sector who knows but clearly she had opinions she knew what was going on in the international doc you know literature and what was happening and she knew that this system was going to be imperiled she knew what was coming and did not speak up to i mean obviously they must have been in communication if not daily i mean who else would be who else are you communicating with if not the Minister of Long-Term Care? I mean, you can't just say Dr. Williams was operating rogue on his own because obviously there were meetings, they were all talking to each other. Why didn't she push harder to protect this sector? I'm sorry, but that's on her. Let me ask you about the the, the decision, sorry, not to fully ban workers from working uh, multiple homes, uh, personal support uh, workers. Uh, we know in the uh, months uh, afterwards, there's been more money offered to PSWs uh, and now more money for training and uh, recruitment. But obviously that was a critical error. 
it was a big error. And, and the commissioners were very clear to point out to her that based on the SARS reports and everything we learned from SARS, they documented in the SARS reports that not only was this a dangerous faux pas, but furthermore, that the problem of labor casualization, meaning there's a lot of part-time precarious work, was well known in long-term care and community care. So they should have planned a surge capacity for this exact problem. And yet they didn't. And they claimed, you know, they didn't want to limit workers to one place because of potential legal issues and, and that it would, you know, create further staffing collapses. But you didn't engage in a staffing blitz like Quebec did and like BC did. I mean, you only just announced, what was it, last week that you're going to start hiring thousands of workers after the entire sector has already been vaccinated and the imminent risk of death is all but gone. I mean, seriously? <laughs> why, why now? And it's funny because the commissioners pointed this out, too. They said, well, hold on. We just saw you made this announcement last week. Why are we only hearing about this now? You're supposed to tell us about policies uh, specific to long-term care because that's part of our, our portfolio for this commission. And, you know, she just said, oh, sorry, everything happened so quickly. And you have to wonder if some of that had to do with the fact that they wanted to show that they had something that came out of this before their testimony you know, like the timing is very suspect. One has to wonder, right? Let me ask you before we run out of time uh, here, how much discussion was there during the uh, commission last week when it comes to for-profit long-term care homes? Because as we all know, they were disproportionately affected oh, yeah. when it comes to uh, deaths, COVID-related uh, deaths. Is there a call for, was there any talk to eliminate for-profit long-term care in the province? Oh, that conversation was, was had actually with Minister Fullerton. And the commissioners were very wise to point out, well, hold on, we've reviewed all this evidence. We've had multiple experts tell us the clear failure of the for-profit sector compared to the municipal sector and particularly the municipal sector. So they pointed out to Minister Fullerton herself things like how, you know, uh, the municipalities, for example, City of Toronto, they had surge capacity. They sent people from parks and other different um, areas into long-term care. They had better paid employees, happier employees. They were able to fundraise and chip in to offer more hours of direct care and even offer fresh fruits and vegetables, heaven forbid. And, and her response would be, well, uh, that's just because of economies of scale and COVID doesn't identify whether it's for-profit or not-profit. So she would continue to defend for-profit in the face of this glaring evidence that is being presented to her by the commissioners. It just made no sense. All right. Having said all of that, and we keep saying this time and time again as we discuss a long-term care that the status quo just isn't good enough. Things have got to change. Do you believe that things are changing? Are we on the precipice of a change after this commission last week? Honestly, I'm not too sure. I don't know if this government will do what is needed to actually really meaningfully put in place the changes we need. Is it going to have to be the next government? Or And this is why I'm on the side also advocating for national standards, because I don't have faith that this government will do well, heed the advice of experts and the workers and the families because they've spoken loud and clear. And one of the biggest things is they want to the phasing out of for-profit long-term care. Everyone saw what happened. We don't want it. We're, so the message has been loud and clear. Take your business elsewhere. Open up the coffee shop chain. Get out of long-term care. We don't want you there. So we're, time will tell what will happen. All right. Well, we will uh, continue to be on this story. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, long-term care advocate. Doctor, really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Okay, there are growing reports of both chaos and confusion at those designated hotels where travelers arriving here in Canada, they're now being forced to quarantine. Here's a Global's Jeff Semple with more on that story. I would call it a boondoggle. Ray Truesdale knew this would be a bumpy business trip. On Wednesday, he arrived from Tennessee to Toronto. Per Canada's new rules, he was tested for COVID-19 on arrival and quarantined in an airport hotel pending the results. Truesdale lives with diabetes and says he was told meals would be delivered to his room. But after nearly 24 hours, he says he still hadn't received any food. And nobody answers the phone. So... I went down to the lobby. When I opened the doors, it was incredible. He recorded this video of hangry hotel guests. I understand that. Packed in the lobby, shouting at staff. They were screaming. Uh, I thought they were going to lynch the manager. Truesdale eventually received some toast and a message that his COVID test sample had been damaged and he needed another. But there's nothing on there that tells you where, what to do. So what do I do? Who do I contact? So Truesdale left his room again, returned to the airport to receive another test. Social media is flooded with similar accounts from travelers waiting on hold for hours, forced to pay premium prices with little or no food. We're not trying to punish people. We're trying to keep people safe. In announcing the new measures, the government pointed to concerns of COVID variants arriving from abroad, urging Canadians to avoid pandemic travel. But some insist they have no choice. So we had to make the very difficult decision to go to Australia. Camila Pulido just arrived from down under, visiting her terminally ill father-in-law. She says the processing of passengers at Vancouver's airport was so disorganized, she had to interact with a dozen different staff. We just couldn't believe how much risk we had just encountered. Like, we would have felt so much safer if we had just come home. I spoke with one woman who arrived here in Toronto last night on a flight with her family from Pakistan. She says that when she arrived, she was told all the hotels were fully booked and was instructed to quarantine instead at home. All right, there's Global's Jeff Semple. Let's welcome in for more on this now, Jim Byers, Canada's travel guide. Guy, sorry, he joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jim, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? I'm okay, thanks. Uh, what we just heard there in Jeff Semple's report, is that what you're hearing? Has that been generally the experience, chaos, confusion? There's been a lot of that. I mean, whether that's generally the case. I mean, you know, in these situations, Jeff, you don't hear from the people who are happy, and I'm sure they're, nobody's happy at a three-day quarantine, but you don't want to hear from the people who think, okay, well, this isn't great, but I'll suck it up, and, and it's not so bad. You do tend to hear from you know, the proverbial squeaky wheels, but there's been a lot of this, you know, um, um, and some of them were fairly minor complaints. Somebody said, you know, I, I want bottled water between my meal. And they said, well, no, I'm sorry. You have to drink the water from the tap. Now that's hardly a hardship of epic proportions if you're in a hotel in, in Canada, but you know, somebody getting like two pieces of toast who's diabetic, um, somebody else opening up their breakfast and getting a little uh, small container of yogurt and two cold pieces of bread, other meals being delivered late, food being delivered cold. I mean, Goodness sakes, these, these hotels were supposed to have been screened. These are all big hotels. These are not mom-and-pop operations in, you know, no offense, but, you know, the Northern Territories or uh, rural province somewhere. These are uh, airport hotels used to dealing with business people. They're in the, the biggest cities in Canada. There's like 23 or 21 or 22 of these hotels. So these are Hilton's, they're Marriott's, they're Holiday Inn's. For goodness sakes, people, it shouldn't be that difficult 
to be able to get somebody a reasonable hot meal. You know, it, it doesn't, I'm not expecting, I was laughing on Twitter, you know, I, nobody's expecting uh, Jamie Oliver or Gordon Ramsay or, you know, uh, uh, Nigella Lawson uh, gourmet meals that they can post on Instagram. But, you know, reasonably hot food delivered at a reasonable time does not seem much to ask when someone is spending the kind of money that they are for these airport hotels. Sure, but not only that, there's some safety concerns. I've seen uh, where they've had a holding area, it looks like in a hotel banquet uh, room where people have all been uh, thrust indoors uh, together. And it seems as if the government didn't adequately uh, prepare these uh, hotels for uh, what was about to happen and the enhanced protocols when it comes to COVID. Well, then, you know, there's that, Jeff, and I think you're right. And, and you know, they, they, they really had thought a lot of these things through. And, you know, there's not really that much security. If this gentleman was able to just go because he got a, a, a bad test was taken, if he could just walk out of his room and go back to the airport, there's nothing wrong. You know, so they're clearly all this money that went for security is not going for very good security. You know, we we did a story on our Canadian travel news site the other day about some people from the Cayman Islands. And they were saying, you know, they haven't had a, a community spread uh, case of COVID-19 in almost nine months, nine or 10 months. And what they're really afraid of is not so much uh, coming to the hotel, although that that's a little scary, but, you know, you get off the plane and you're in a large room with, with 100 or 150 other people in close quarters waiting for your test. And then you get on a little bus and then you go to the hotel. And they're like, well, we're much better off to just go straight to, uh, to to a house and not go through all of this. So I, I do understand all the concerns. You know, I, I don't think it's been really uh, uh, properly thought of. And my goodness, we did have an entire year. I mean, you know, the pandemic pretty much hit the end of March. So certainly we've had a good uh, 10 months to figure out about a, a better plan. Than that. Well, I was going to ask you that. Do you think this is just growing pains? Kind of, uh, I don't know, like any restaurant opening uh, the first week uh, is not always uh, their best week. They're just kind of getting up and running. Is that the case for these uh, hotels? Or to your point, first of all, they've been in business a long time. And secondly, they theoretically, they and the government had a long time to prepare for this. Well, well, that's it. You know, it is like a restaurant growing pain, but with with, with far far more dire consequences. I mean, if you're if you're served an undercooked steak, you can send it back and and have it uh, you know fix, fix up for you. If if you if you ordered baked potatoes and you get fries, they can substitute that. But you know, if somebody's scared, if they're diabetic and they're not getting food, I mean, that takes on an, an entirely different health concern. And you know, when people are storming a lobby of a hotel and and demanding food and you know and knocking on the manager's door, that's not a good situation. So clearly. You know, somebody panicked when it when it came time to the for the variants and and you know, brought in a, a a policy that with really not thinking the whole thing through and and people are suffering because of this and it's not just a slight inconvenience for some people. I think it's far more than that for a number of folks. Yeah, I was really struck by the quote the prime minister had in that piece we ran just before we brought you on from Jeff Semple, in which he said, "We are not trying to punish people; we are trying to keep people safe." But is is the jury still out on that? Do you think, uh, Jim, considering some of the concerns we've just been talking about, whether or not they truly are keeping people more safe rather than letting them just go home and quarantine there? Well, I mean, and I think so. And there was that other report that I think Jeff mentioned that that. Uh, um, you know, somebody was was arriving in the airports and, and uh, the hotels were all full. Well, then they're sending people home. Well, if you can send those people home, why couldn't the people in the hotels have just gone home? 
you know, where they can at least get a decent meal and, and be looked after. And if you're going to have really great security and good food, well, then that's fine. But, I mean, they seem to have fallen down on a number of standards. So maybe this is just the first week. You know, this only did come in on Monday, but it just doesn't seem like it was very well thought out. And, and there's a lot of holes in this in, in this policy, and, and it's it's really unfortunate for these folks. And don't forget, they are spending a lot of money. And as some of the people you, your, your reporters spoke with, you know, these are not all people who've been going down to Jamaica to, to, to drink rum punch or, or uh, sitting by a pool in, in Cancun. Some of these people had, have had relatives that have passed away. Some of them have had uh, family issues or, or a marriage breakup or something. You know, not everyone is traveling is, is having a great time in the Caribbean. There are people that tra- traveling for legitimate reasons, and they should be treated with respect. Joined by Jim Byers, Canada's travel guy. Well, we have you here, Jim. Some other travel news this regarding uh, the airlines and uh, WestJet have uh, announced uh, more layoffs. Yeah, there's looks like there's going to be 415 uh, pilots laid off. I think they already had 120 cabin crew that could be laid off as as early as tomorrow, according to some other uh, published reports. You know, it's it's really actually today is believe it or not, it's WestJet's 25th anniversary. So it's a quarter century of flying today. Obviously not the kind of party that they would like to have to celebrate 25 years. It's a very unfortunate circumstance to, to be in this situation. But, you know, they're, they're not alone. I mean, uh, Porter Airlines this morning announced that they're not, uh, uh, they had hoped to get flying again by March 29th. They announced today that because of the continuing travel restrictions, it's now going to be May, uh, May 19th. So, you know, by the time that comes along, Jeff, I mean, May 19th, 2021 will be almost 14 months to the day from the day they had to shut it down. So that's that's 14 months without flying. And that's fine. It's, you know, somebody can't fly to Montreal or whatever. But, you know, there are people who work for these companies. There are, there are uh, electricians and maintenance workers and flight crew and other people supporting them. There are people at the airport. So this is this has a real domino effect when an airline can't fly. It's, it's not just people being put out of a personal vacation. There are obvious economic costs to something like this. Yeah, and having said that, with this news out of West, yet again, 415 pilots laid off. There's greater calls, more call, calls, sorry, for government assistance, because you're absolutely right here, Jim. I mean, we're talking about people's jobs, their livelihoods, their families uh, as well. Has it come time, do you think, for the government to step in and do something with the airlines? Well, you know, they've only been talking for four months, so maybe we need to give them a little bit more time. <laughs> I mean, seriously, they start, I think it was November 5th, if I'm not mistaken, Jeff, they finally sat down, which was a good nine months or eight months after the pandemic hit, before they even sat down with the airlines. It's now been almost four months. And I know it's complicated, and nobody really wants to bail out Air Canada or even WestJet when it's privately owned by by Jerry Schwartz. I understand that. But somebody sooner or later, I mean, there there was talk about two weeks ago that a deal's imminent, a deal's imminent, right? And nothing happened. So um, I've been putting a couple feelers out. I'm not getting much of anything. So uh, sometimes what happens when, you know, when a deal is close is when people kind of zip their lips. So perhaps that's all this is, that that people are close and they don't want to say anything. But I'm not hearing much of anything, and I would have thought by now we would have had some news on this one. All right. Well, it certainly has been devastating to that industry, the travel industry, the uh, pandemic has. Jim Byers, Canada's travel guy. Jim, appreciate it as always. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. All the best. Okay, if you're a parent, no doubt you have had challenges when it comes to homeschooling and having the kids home for months on end. And some parents who have had challenges entertaining kids for months wondering whether or not their kids will be allowed to go to summer camp this year. Or will they be staring face-to-face with each other all day, all summer long? Thomas Appleyard is with the Ontario Camp Association's COVID Testing Task Force and joins us now for more on this. 
here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Thomas, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate you being here. Okay, let me ask you the big question first. Do we know, will Ontario summer camps be allowed to open this year? Well, we sure hope so, and we're planning for for camps to to be open and run really well. We know that day camps in in many parts of the province already can open, and they're they're getting ready for March break camps and Easter camps. And there's a lot of work underway to make sure that all camps can open really well. All right, well, let's talk a uh, a little bit about some of that work. Uh, What's the planning going on behind the scenes right now to be able to open up summer camps safely as the pandemic rages on? Right. Well, we know that camps will play a really positive role for for everyone who goes to camp, particularly for children who, who've had a really difficult year dealing with the, the pandemic and the, the lockdown orders, being separated from friends and missing all kinds of opportunities. And we know that, that camp will really help turn this around for children. So, so there is a lot of work underway, Jeff. We're we're working through the Ontario Camps Association. We're working really closely with the provincial government. We're working with those provincial public health authorities. And we know that we all have the same, the same goal, to, to get camps open so that, that everyone can, can get to camp and have those, those great experiences. Yeah, is one of the things, sorry to interrupt, Thomas, but is one of the things that summer camps have got going for them is the fact that generally a lot of the activities are outdoors, and obviously, as we know, being outdoors and in the summer is safer? Quite right. Absolutely. That is that is a point in our favor. But And, and camps that, that do have programs that are both inside and outside, we know that an important piece of the guidance will be to spend as much of that outside time as you can. Even opening opening windows for, for those programs that are more indoors will make a big difference. All right. And what is the uh, challenge when it comes to distancing and you've got uh, kids and uh, summer camps uh, going on? I would imagine for counselors, camp workers, that's a real challenge. can be a challenge. Programs will certainly look differently this year from, from a normal year and for, for many camps anyway. We know that there are great success stories with camps that, that ran in the U.S. last summer or even right here in Ontario, a number of day camps that success, really successfully ran last year. So we know that, that some of the program might look quite different. We expect that it will probably be more of a small group activity-based program for some camps compared to usual. This might not be the year where the whole camp can be in the dining hall at the same time. But a lot of but that's a lot of what camps are thinking through now is how how do you make camp really fun and a terrific experience and manage those COVID nineteen risks? Are the numbers going to have to be smaller? Do you think uh, this year? As we know, it's tough sometimes for parents to get their kids into camp in a regular uh, year. Never mind one where we're dealing still with a uh, pandemic. And we've heard this, uh, Thomas, from teachers and uh, from schools. Uh, one of the things they've advocated throughout this pandemic is smaller class sizes. Do you think that we're going to see uh, smaller camp sizes? We don't think smaller camp sizes necessarily. We know that registration for camps across the province has gone extremely well so far, so there's a big demand for it. We think that that the, while the activity within the camp that might be composed of smaller groups 
we see no reason why the absolute number of kids who can be at camp at the same time needs to be smaller. Now, that said, ultimately, that's going to be a government decision, and we're, we're, we're waiting for those specific decisions now. And is there a timeline for those decisions to come down? Because, uh, I mean, I'm cognizant it's only the 1st of uh, March today. We've had a few flurries in the uh, sky, unfortunately, or in the air here this afternoon down at the uh, waterfront. But believe it or not, spring is coming and summer isn't far behind. Again, I want to stress that a lot in, in much of the province, day camps can open now. So, so the, you know, we have the green light there and, and looking forward to, uh, to uh, a decision on overnight camps. All right, but is that something that's going to be based, do you think, on caseload and the effect of the variants, uh, where we're at maybe closer to summer? We expect so. So we're anticipating that overnight camps will, will appear in the next version of the, of the framework that the province uses to determine what kinds of organizations can open when, um, and that'll make it clear what the situation would need to be for overnight camps to open. All right. And just finally, Thomas, you touched on this a few moments ago, but I think it's worth uh, reiterating and repeating here is just how important that camp experience is, particularly for kids in a year where their uh, school year has been, uh, you know, upended uh, not only the beginning of this year, but of course, we remember uh, a year ago in school outright uh, canceled right around this time. Yeah, we know it's going to be really important for for everyone to to be able to to get to camp, particularly particularly children. You know, we think there's a there's an epidemic of social isolation going on right now, and that the camp experience of bringing people together, of managing risks, but being together, being outside, will make a huge difference for for kids this summer, and it'll make a huge difference for their health. So we, we think of these the risks associated with COVID in relative terms. Yes, there are some risks uh, associated with COVID, and, and there are also real benefits to being able to get to summer camp this year. All right. Thomas Appleyard, member of the Ontario Camp Association's COVID-19 Task Force. Thomas, thanks so much for the time and the update this afternoon. Thank you so much.